0: As so we were singing a uh, song, our God, um, our God is Healer, I thought about, uh, you know, many in our church that are they're struggling or have loved ones that are, uh, that are struggling with sickness, and I just want to have a special uh, word of prayer. I felt impressed to do this a, a minute ago. I know, um, well, I was thinking about Kurt, our drummer up there, is playing the drums, his son, in the hospital. And... Uh, Kurt, just want you, we're going to stop. We're going to pray for Michael. I feel impressed to do that. Also, Sam Jones is back in church, had major, major surgery, and uh, one of our newer members. And uh, we praise the Lord for, for Sam. I thought about uh, Sandy Williamson's mom's in the hospital. And they're not in the hospital, but this is their last Sunday in our church. They've been here for 25 years, Bob and uh, Rachel. I know Bob and Rachel. Where are you guys? Where are you? Right there. God bless y'all. We're going to miss you. You're moving to California, all right. I'm sorry about that. No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're, we're sorry that you're leaving us more than anything, so very faithful, faithful family, and uh, we, will, we will miss them. If you ever see Rachel, she's always smiling, She so always has a word of encouragement and blessing. We will miss you and pray that God raises up people to come behind you that will fill that void in our lives. So anybody else? Um, if you'd raise your hand, just say, man, I've got some sickness. I've got some people I'm praying for. Would you raise your hand? Anybody got somebody that you're concerned? Sahaya, God bless you. I didn't know you were here. Oh, my word. It is so good to see you. We pray for you often. And uh, Lord bless you. Glad that you're here. James Tisdale, I'm glad that you're here. Buried your precious wife just a few weeks ago. So many people, you know, we come to church and... Um, Maybe on the outside we look good, but on the inside we have hurts. We have pains and struggles, things that we uh, things that we deal with. So I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray that God would touch you and God would encourage you, whether your hurt is inside or whether it's physical on the outside. Let me say a prayer for you before I preach this message. Lord, we praise your name. We love you. We thank you uh, that you are Jehovah Rophe, the God that heals. And whatever ailment we have, Lord, whatever sickness, pain, trouble, discouragement, whatever that we brought into this place today, thank you, Lord, that you know and that you care. And Lord, not only do you know and care, but you can do something about it. And you're the only one that can truly touch our bodies and bring healing and touch our minds and bring peace and touch our souls and give us everlasting life. So Lord, I just pray right now for every person that raised their hand. Lord, whether that was for themselves or whether that was for someone else, a loved one perhaps, a friend, we pray for them. We pray for uh, Kurt, and Kathy's son, Michael. We pray for healing, for proper diagnosis for him. We also, Lord, pray for uh, those that are like the Bob and Rachel God, that are leaving us and pray for them, that you'd send them to a great church there in California and let them know how much we love and, and that, Lord, we, we miss them. Thank you, Lord, for those that are in the church today, like Sam and like Zahaya, that have had some serious uh, struggles physically, but, Lord, they're here, and like Pastor James Tisdale, here, Lord. Faithful, faithful, faithful. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are kind, and no matter what the devil tells us about you, God, we choose to believe what your Word says about you, that you are good, just, loving, compassionate. Lord, for those that are facing life-changing decisions, Lord, whether it's occupations and jobs, whether it's who we're supposed to, to marry and where we're supposed to live, for those huge, Lord, prodigious decisions, we pray for peace, pray for wisdom, God, that you would grant our heart's desire. Lord, perhaps of all the verses in Revelation, this is my favorite. As I get to preach on it today, I pray for wisdom. I pray, God, for your peace and authority. Thank you for these men of God that surrounded me earlier, that prayed for me. And we just pray now, God, that you'd speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. And Lord, I finally pray. I know, Lord, there are some in this room today, Lord, because we just know there are those that need to be saved. And we pray that you would touch their hearts. And Lord, may today be the day where the barriers are broken down, where the shackles fall from their eyes and they see the glory of the cross and they would see the resurrection in the empty tomb and they would realize that it was all for them and they would repent of their sins and by faith trust in the risen Lord for salvation and we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen Scott Edelman is the editor-in-chief for Science Fiction Weekly he's a very gifted author of course you should be if you're an editor-in-chief for a major magazine and years ago he Attended a special showing of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And that movie, by the way, still is such a, a powerful de- depiction and description of the epical, the epic all time battle between good and evil. Of course, Tolkien, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, was a follower of Christ. And I believe he did the best that he possibly could, probably better than any other human being outside of Scripture who has painted for us this very vivid, powerful depiction of good versus evil. And Scott Edelman, he, he watched the showing, and he wrote these powerful words, and I want to read them to you, and this was his, his reaction. Sitting in my comfortable stadium-style theater seat, in a fresh, clean theater, in the midst of a safe suburb, watching dirt-encrusted heroes... Stretched to the breaking point as they risk their lives to save their troubled world, I thought, why aren't I doing something like this? Why aren't I doing something that is equally important? There are great needs that need doing in that treacherous world out there, and most of us in the audience do nothing that has those kinds of stakes. Thoreau famously said that men live lives of quiet desperation, and he was right. But the truth goes even further than that because most of us live lives that are just, well, quiet. Even as we watch or read about those who are living their lives at full volume, face-to-face with Aragon and Theoden and others willing to head into battles that seem like suicide in order to save Middle-earth. Well, to be a writer or an editor in that moment felt like being a clown. There are wrongs to be righted. There are evils to be toppled here on the real earth, and I was settling for watching others do it for me vicariously. During that screening, it did not seem like enough. It seemed as if I should be doing more." End of quote. That is precisely how I feel when I come to Revelation chapter 12. As I read Revelation chapter 12 and this cosmic, epical battle between not just good and evil, but between God and Satan, as I read this this amazing passage of scripture and I, I walk away going, Surely I need to be doing more. And it's not a battle for Middle earth, it is the battle of all battles. It's the battle for the souls of men and women and students and boys and girls, souls that will live forever, whether in heaven above or on hell below. What am I doing? What are you doing to make a difference in the life of people whose destiny hangs in the balance? As I read Revelation chapter 12 today, I'm going to pick up in verse 10, and we're going to go through the remainder of the chapter. And really verse 12, it's, it's one of those apex, pinnacle, high-water marks in all the Word of God. I've committed it to memory for years upon years. I have quoted the Scripture every single day, as I put on the full armor of God to do battle against the evil one. So let us read in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice, John said. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him. Praise the Lord. And they overcame him. The antecedent for him is clearly the dragon. And the dragon, metaphorically speaking, is clearly none other than Satan, Lucifer, the devil himself. And they are followers of Christ, and they, Nikeo, Nike, overcome him in the following ways. We overcome, praise God, through the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. And they did not love their lives even to the death. Therefore, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil. He has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. We noticed last week that the woman represents Israel, or believing Israel. Persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And we looked last week, we clearly defined that the male child is none other than the Messiah, the Christ. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent," remember, this is the dragon, this is the devil, "...he spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was thumos." It means to be so absolutely enraged that you have no rationale about your wits, or about your mind. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Wow! How would you like to preach on that passage of Scripture? So I'm better you than me, brother. I have no idea what that means. Well, I didn't either until I began to study it. And I begin to really analyze it and, and study God's word and say, Lord, I know this is your word. What does it mean? And what is it saying to us today in 2015, even though it was written around A.D. 95? Well, it has a lot to say to us. And I pray today that as you listen, that your minds are, that your minds are open and that you're malleable and your volition, your heart is open to what God would have to say to your mind and to your heart, and we would walk out of here changed Forever, eleven fifteen will be. It's going to continue to be one of those powerful passages of Scripture. Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounds, and now when the seventh angel sounds, and he really begins to pick up the seven trumpets uh, and seven bold judgments in uh, chapter sixteen. But before chapter sixteen comes, chapter fifteen will come, and it will be a chronology of what is going to happen on earth. But twelve. 13 and 14 is an interesting triumphant or a trilogy in the chapters of the book of Revelation. Now watch this. 12, 13, and 14 view eschatology, or they view the future of the world, the end times, from the perspective of the devil. I'm going to talk a lot about the devil today. He said, "Well, you don't really believe in the devil, do you? I mean, you know, I mean, all these mythical, you know, fable stories of a of a dragon with a tail and he's red. Let me tell you something, friend. I absolutely believe in him. I believe he is a very real person, and his primary his primary uh, goal and modus operandi is to accuse God to us and accuse us to God." But I'm so grateful today that I get to share, and I get to preach about his demise. And if you're a preacher of the gospel, and you have the guts to preach through the book of Revelation, you better buckle up, because the enemy will hate you for it. And he will do everything in his power to withstand you and oppose you like he's been doing to me. But I know you pray for me, and I thank you. I know you stand in the gap. Many of you pray and fast for me every day. Every day, I usually hear from somebody, not every day, but I know what's happening, that there's a man of God at Great Hills Baptist Church who's praying and fasting for me. And I just want you to know I appreciate it, and I need it, especially on a day like today when I preach about the victory of Christ, the awesome victory of Christ over the evil one. Let me begin, number one, in your outline. You'll write these words, celebration in heaven. Celebration. In heaven, and that's verses 10 through 12. The loud voice comes from the redeemed in heaven and not the angels, because later on it says, Our brethren, which points further to the fact that the redeemed here. Is talking about the redeemed from all time and eternity, those who believe in God, those who are people of faith. We are rejoicing because we know that in the end the devil does not win, that God wins. He reigns supreme, and so there is joy in heaven. Satan's expulsion from heaven in verses 7 through 9 is a major event unfolding in the end times. The devil has been thrown out of the heavenly realm, and he's been cast to earth. And those in heaven rejoice, but those on earth, it's going to be a very difficult time. When you look at verse 10, notice with me that the the characteristics, if you will, of those in heaven and the kingdom of God. It says, now salvation belongs to our Lord. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we we read about that where it talks about all the tribes and the tongues and the nations and the ethnic groups from all time and eternity. God has redeemed some of those people and they are standing before the throne of God and, and they are singing praise and hallelujah, glory to God, it was worth it all. It was worth all the trials and the pain and the difficulty walking with you on earth because now we rejoice with you in heaven. Number one, he says, now salvation. Next he says, and the strength. And that is the word dunamis. I'm in verse 10, by the way. Look at verse 10. Now salvation, and now strength, and that great word dunamis where we get the English word dynamite, belong to our Lord and the kingdom of our God. That is the same kingdom that Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done—can you all help me?—on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's about to happen. The King is going to come. The Bible says in verse 12, Satan's time is very limited. He's not going to be able to do this but three and a half more years. When that time comes in the great tribulation, and then Jesus comes, he comes with his kingdom, and he reigns for a thousand years. So the kingdom of our God, and next this word, and power, exousian. It means authority. The authority of his Christ have come for or because the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. As I said earlier, the great attribute of the evil one is his accusations. He is the master deceiver of accusations. I said this quickly, but I don't want you to miss this. His modus operandi is he accuses us to God. Now he still does this, by the way, because he has not been cast down yet out of the heavenly realm. Now, I know Satan and his demonic horde, they have been thrown out of heaven, but they still operate in this heavenly realm. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at Job chapter 1, and I'm going to read it. So Satan answered the Lord. Now, this is after his pre-cosmic fall, if you will, Lucifer's fall, and with the third of the angels that fell with him, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? But now... And Remember, he has access. He's talking to God. Satan is talking to God. and He says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you, God, to your face. Do you see what he's doing? He is accusing us to God, and he's trying to create this enmity. He's trying to create this distortion between our awesome heavenly maker and us. So he accuses us to God, but watch this. He accuses God to us. So many times, it happened even this week, someone is angry, they're mad at God because they believe the delusion, the lie of the evil one, that you can't really trust Him, can you? Really if God was all that benevolent and He was all that awesome, you really wouldn't get cancer, would you? Or your your son wouldn't stray from the faith, would he? Or you wouldn't have such great financial difficulty, would you? If God was all that God said that he was, you wouldn't be having all these problems now, would you? And he casts it, and he makes you doubt. Don't raise your hand, but many of you are there. Many of you are there. You doubt the goodness and the generosity, and the faithfulness of God. But what we forget is there is a devil that hates us and accuses us, and we are sinful, and we are to blame. God's never to blame. The devil's to blame. This fallen world is to blame. We are to blame, but God is never to blame. But if, God, but if the devil can get you to blame God, he can make you quit blaming him, and now you will be antagonistic and you will be against God. That's what he does. He said, "Bro Danny, how would you know all that? I just know that because that's what he does to me. And that's what he does to you. But Jesus said whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, because he's a murderer and he's the father of lies. Another thing he does is he creates enmity and disharmony and disunity within the church, because he hates the church. And I would go on record to say he especially hates this church. Because this church is going to be faithful to Christ. We're going to be faithful to his word. And if he can whisper something in your ear over here to make you upset with that person over there, or if he can accuse me to you or you to me, and if he can create this tension and the disharmony and the frustration, well, I'm getting out of here. Man, I just need to go find another church. Man, I just need to go do something else with my life because, I mean, this place is just— And Satan just smiles. And he is happy to create that disunity and that disharmony, but I don't want you to listen to him. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of God who is greater. Listen to the Lord who says in His Word, greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Verse 11, here it comes. One of the greatest verses in all the Word of God. Man, this is so powerful. Please don't miss this. There are three ways that you overcome Him. Now, in your outline, I want you to write these down. Number one is called the blood of the Lamb. Please write those words down. Revelation 12, 11, there's rejoicing in heaven because we are overcomers. And the way we overcome is through the blood of Christ. Now, when you hear the blood of Christ, <laughs> think about this. Think about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. There was a price that had to be paid, and it was his blood. He laid down his life. He became sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become righteous before God First John 2, 1 says that he is our propitiation. He is the one who's taken upon himself all the wrath of God so that you and I could be cleansed and we could be forgiven so that 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 relationship and that harmony can be restored between us and God. And we're no longer enslaved to the world and to the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and and all this entanglement and all this sin. It's, It's stripped away from us because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us, and He has reconciled us to holy God. When you think of the blood of the Lamb, think of the empty tomb, because the Bible always thinks of these as a coherent unit. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, He just did not die, but He paid a price, and He didn't stay in the tomb, but up from the grave He arose, and because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. And because He lives, I know, I know, amen, amen, as Matt Marr wrote it and Terry sang it just a moment ago. Perfect song for this sermon. I heard Matt Marr share his testimony, and he said, because of the resurrection, because Jesus Christ died and arose from the dead, nothing has dominion or power over us. Because in Christ, we have been made right with God. We've been made right with one another. And that's how we overcome is through the blood of the Lamb, the empty tomb, the risen Christ, number one. Number two. And they overcame Him, not only through the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of their martyrian, martyrian. The Greek word martyrian, we translate it testimony. It's literally when you transliterate that word from Greek to English, what do you get? What does it sound like? Sounds like a martyr, and that's exactly right. And they overcame him by the word, the spoken word of their testimony. Oh, church, listen to this. Whenever you and I get a testimony, and by the way, the only way you get a testimony is that God intervenes in your story. Your test in life creates the testimony of your life. In the mess of your life, God intervenes and creates a message for your life. And so the word of your testimony is when God redeemed you, when God saved you, when God changed you, and now you say, look what God has done in my life. I've overcome. I've overcome sin and the grave and the evil one. Praise the Lord. I have a testimony. listen, when you share that, and when you speak that, the ooh, this is the part, I couldn't wait to say this. Help me say it, Lord. Here it comes. The kingdom of heaven is augmented and increased, and the kingdom and the domain of darkness is decreased whenever you speak your testimony. So speak your testimony. Speak it. I mean, share it. Wherever you are, just say, hey, can I tell you what God has done for me? And when you do that, something very powerful happens. Heaven's increased, and hell is decrease, so share it. So they overcame him through the blood of the Lamb, their testimony, and number three, they did not love their lives unto death. And I've just translated it this way, they had courage. They had great courage. When you're courageous in your faith and you're courageous for the things of God, Satan, really, he, he, he loses. They did not love their lives even to the point of death. And, and Something we talked about in our systematic theology class here last year was instead of being so concerned with preserving our life, we ought to be even more concerned for living that life for Christ, even if it cost us our life. Now, I know that's very anti-American, amen? I mean, we're, we're going to fight death tooth and nail. Listen, I don't want to fight death if I'm called upon by Christ to lay down my life for the cause of the gospel then my life is no value to me because I have a higher call. I have a more pristine, glorious future. Now, if you have that mentality, you are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. He really can't do anything to you because you've already died. You've died to yourself, and the life that you live, it's live for Christ. Now, John knew all about this. John was the only one of 12 who did not die a violent martyr's death. Now, lest you think he just kind of got away with it, listen to me, when he was exiled from being a pastor in Ephesus to being a, a rogue, an enemy of the state, when he was placed in the Aegean Sea on this penal colony called Patmos, man, it's a beautiful place, and I've been there, and I encourage you, if you get a chance, go to Patmos. It's this beautiful island in the midst of of the Aegean Sea, but there were robbers there, murderers there, rapists there, and John was there because he believed in Christ. And they placed him there. They banished him there. But what happened to his brother? James. Well, James was taken to, a, to the authorities, to the proconsul, and, and they, they said, are you, are you one of those? Are you one of those disciples, one of those apostles, one of those followers of Christ? And, and James says, I am. And he had this sweet demeanor about him. He had such a peace about him that one of the early church fathers writing about it said these words. He said, he had such a demeanor about him in the face of death that one of his executioners said, sir, whatever you have, I want that. And he gave his life to Christ. And James reached out to one of his would-be executioners, and he reached out and he hugged him and he kissed him, and then both of them were beheaded. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony, they don't love their lives unto death. Heaven is increased and the hell is decreased. thought about another one, Andrew. Remember Andrew who brought his brother Peter to Christ? Whenever you read about Andrew in the Bible, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I wish they could say that about me. I wish that when my time is gone, they'd say, you know, Brother Dan, he, he was always witnessing. He was always talking to somebody about Jesus. Hallelujah. That's what Andrew did. He was in Ethiopia preaching the gospel, and the governor of Ethiopia, they captured him they said, are you the one? Are you the one that's telling people to believe in this new sect, this new religion? Are you the one that's diminishing the worship of the Roman gods and idols? And and Andrew said, I am. I am that person. And the governor of Ethiopia said, sir, if you will only recant, if you will only turn your back on this Christ, and if you will... Be a promoter of our gods and the worship of our idols, uh, I will not crucify you. And Andrew said these words Oh, sir, I would have never preached the honor and the glory of the cross if I feared the cross. Oh, God, help me say that. I never would have preached the cross and honored it if I ever. Feared it. And then Andrew said these words. This is from the Fox Book of Martyrs, and it's test by Jerome and the other early church fathers. And this is what Andrew said. O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind and joyfully and desirously I come to thee, being the scholar of him which did hang on thee. Mercy. Just a second. I come to thee, being the scholar of him. You, O cross, are the scholar of him which did hang on thee because I have always been thy lover and have coveted to embrace thee, O cross. I come to thee. Listen, when you're like that, Satan has nothing on you. He can't steal anything. He can't destroy you. And that's why John says, and they overcame him. And by the way, this is talking about People throughout Christendom and even into the future, we will overcome Him. And there will be rejoicing in heaven because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and we do not love our lives, even to the point of martyrdom, to the point of death. That's point one. Now let me go to point two. And that's called sorrow on earth. There's joy in heaven, but there's going to be sorrow on earth. And I'm going to go through this quickly, verses 12 through 17. Uh, The devil is outraged. He's been kicked out of the heavenly realm. He will be. And this time frame will be known as the great tribulation this last three and a half years. Satan will be expelled, expelled uh, from even that access, that heavenly realm. And, And the Bible says he will be enraged, great rage, thumos in verse 12. And as I read it a moment ago, a violent outburst of rage that has no rationale to it. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this text, he quotes a man by the name of John Phillips, and he writes these words. Satan is now a caged lion. He is enraged beyond words by the limitations now placed upon his freedom. He picks himself up from the dust of the earth. He shakes his fist at the sky, and he glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and his spite upon mankind. Donald Gray Barnhouse He makes this statement, and David Jeremiah records it in his commentary. And he says, The animal that was dangerous enough when he roamed through the whole forest is now limited to a stockade, where mad with the restrictions which he sees around him and raging because he feels the end is near, he throws the insane strength of the death struggle into all of his movements. End of quote. Let me help you with something in verse 12. The Bible says, "Therefore, rejoice, O heavens who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time." In other places in Scripture, in even Daniel 7:25 and 12:7, it says, "A time and times and half a time." Have you ever seen that? Have you ever noticed that and read that? That's very important. Watch this: Time is a year. Times is two years and and time-and-a-half is half a year. And and you see this sprinkled in Revelation, 1,260 days. That's 42 months. That's three-and-a-half years. This is Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week is seven years. And the last three-and-a-half years of Daniel's 70th week is known as the Great Tribulation. Satan is cast literally down to earth with his demonic horde. That's why I'm calling it sorrow on earth. Verse 13 says, the dragon, Satan, he is pursuing the woman, Israel, and the child, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and now he attacks and unleashes his fury against God's people. Now in your outline, what I want to help you with is I want to show you there are three attacks, series of attacks. I, I'm not very creative, church. All I can give you is A is going to be attack one, B is going to be attack two. Three is going to be attack three, that's, that's all I got, all right? But but we're going to get it. We're going to understand it right out of the text. So attack one, verses 13 and 14. I believe that this mother is believing — it's either Israel or believing Israel. In verses 13 and 14, you see how the enemy is going to pursue her, but God will grant her this giant eagle, and the eagle will come. and. Pick up her and take her to the wilderness and protect her. Now remember, you know, it's not a literal dragon, the enemy. It's not a literal woman, Israel. It's not a literal eagle. Now don't try to get in your mind's eye this eagle with these humongous talons picking up people, you know, and flying away and putting them over here. This is metaphorical language. This is a way of stating God's protection. Some people believe, and there may be merit in it, if there's one place in the Bible where the United States is mentioned, it's here. And I, and I understand that. It may be. Our national symbol, one of them is the great bald eagle. Israel has no greater friend than America. It could be that we somehow, as a nation, befriend, be a good friend and protect Israel. I don't, I don't know. I think a better interpretation is this one, Exodus 19.4 where it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then another text, it talks about this eagle wing of protection. Psalm 57, 1 says, "Be be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. Watch this. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. So somehow, supernaturally, God is going to intervene and protect this nation of Israel during this great tribulation like a massive eagle's wings and, and, and encompass them and lead them to the wilderness. I believe this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, 16, in his Olivet Discourse when he said, flee to the mountains. Some people believe that what he is referring to and what John is referring to is just east of Jerusalem. There's a place known as the wilderness It's also known as Petra. And in Petra, I have not been there, but it's in Jordan, and I want to go there, and and it's this impregnable force, basically. Petra means rock. It's a rock fortress, tiny entrance and a huge covering. Many people believe in the future, in the Great Tribulation, somehow um, Israel's going to be protected there in Petra from the evil one, from the dragon. Fascinating, fascinating. Attack number two. In verse 15, in the Old Testament, a flood can refer to an army. Jeremiah 46, 7 and 8. Jeremiah 47, 2. The flood refers clearly to a man army. So I believe we should interpret this not as a literal H2O flood, but more of an army with vengeance. Stay with me. I know it's deep. Stay with me. An army of vengeance aligned with the Antichrist, pursuing Israel, and God opens up the earth and somehow consumes them. Now, before you discredit this, let let me remind you that the most salvific, powerful, conspicuous demonstration of the power of God, bar none in the Old Testament, was the Exodus. It's when Israel came to the point of destruction. You remember that? I mean, they, 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 they fled out of Egypt, they're, they're trying to get over to the promised land, but there is a body of water in between them and their future, and the Egyptians are breathing down their neck. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Some of you are going, that's me, preacher, That's, that's pastor, that's me. I mean, I got the promises of God in the future, I got the devil, and uh, I mean, lots of things are chasing me, but man, I've got obstacles, I've got difficulties, I've got impossibilities. Ooh, I got good news for you, he's still the God of the impossible. And what he does is he, he opens up, he opens up the waters, they come through, and they are, the Egyptians are flooded. I think it was last night, it was last night. I was still studying the sermon, preparing the sermon. Somebody said, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? 30 years. It takes me 30 years. I've been preaching for 30 years. You get 30 years' worth. Now, it does take a lot of hours in the week preceding, but the Lord reminded me in the book of Numbers, the story of Korah. Remember, he rebelled against God and his little army, and the Bible literally says, and I've got the citation, it's Numbers chapter 16, verse 32. It says, the, o- the earth opened up, swallowed those rascals. It doesn't say rascals, but it says swallowed them, and the earth closed. So God's done it before. God somehow will do it again. He will open up the earth, receive those, uh, the flood of those armies, and he will protect his people. Exodus 15-2, what a wonderful scripture. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them, end of quote. That's attack number two. There's a third attack. Satan leaves the protected group of God's people, Israel, and now he pursues the rest of her offspring. Who are these people? I believe this would refer to the church, to Gentile and Jew believers. You say, where do you get that? Well, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 says, in in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Think about Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, and we are sons of Abraham if we are people of faith. And so, it may be the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, may be the Jew and Gentile believers, but anyhow, he turns his attention now to the rest, I'm in verse 17, the rest of her offspring who are described in two ways. Watch this. This is powerful. God's people are always described this way, by the way. Number one, they keep God's commandments. Listen, whether it's today or whether it's yesteryear or in the future, one of the defining characteristics or attributes of the people of God is they obey God. They're not perfect, but they obey God best they can. They want to be in church on Sunday because God basically says in the Bible, go to church on Sunday. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. And that is a characteristic, a defining characteristic of a people of God is they meet with one another. We obey God. We share our faith. We give our tithes and our offerings. We, we are benevolent and kind to those in need. We do those things, and therefore we are marked as the people of God because we obey God. It's an honor to obey God the king. And I want to be defined as somebody who obeys him. Now, I'm not, I'm not into perfectionism. I don't believe in entire sanctification. The guy I wrote my dissertation on, he did believe in that. I think he was wrong. If Paul couldn't be completely sanctified, I don't think anybody has a chance. All right. But I think we ought to strive. I think we ought to give it our best and obey God as best we can. And that's a defining characteristic. In verse 17, the second characteristic is they have the testimony of Jesus, the martyrion again. They have that story of life change. They have the testimony of when God intersected in their life, changed them. They were dead in sin, and the Lord God saved them. He resurrected them. He changed them. And they are changed, and they have a a story. and I love to tell the story of Jesus and His love, of Jesus and His blood. And if people give me just a moment, like the guy on the airplane, I had eight hours with him. He gave me a lot of moments last week, a couple weeks ago. And I began to share with him. And you may be here today, and I hope you're here today, because I invited you. But I shared with him the story of how God changed my life. It was a miracle how the Holy Spirit of God intersected with my life and changed my life. That is an attribute. That is a characteristic, a salient characteristic and feature of a child of God is they obey God and they keep His commandments and they have a testimony. They have a story of life change. A number of years ago, there was a young soldier. It's a true story because I was the pastor of this story. There's a young soldier. And, you know, 20-year-old guys, sometimes they just do foolish things. He climbed out of his hotel room on the 12th story, and he was going to try to slip down to the 11th story. Without using the elevator, without using stairs, he just thought he was invincible, and he was going to leap out, and somehow catch the rail and flip over. And he didn't make it. He fell 12 stories to his death. 20-year-old young soldier, sailor in Virginia Beach. He was on the news, made the headlines. His commanding officer, who attended our church, was given the task to go to his parents, collect his belongings, and go to his parents and say, This is what happened to your son. That commanding officer told me, me, his pastor, how that went down. It's horrible, horrible. He said, But, Pastor, he had two things in his possession that were very interesting to me. And by the way, he had nothing that would even reflect that he was a follower of Christ. He had an unfinished letter to his dad. An unfinished letter he was writing to his dad. He never wrote it. And he had an invitation from a soldier friend inviting him to church. Inviting him to church. And this young man, probably with no... Relationship with Christ. There was no evidence of any relationship with Christ. He hadn't finished his letter. He received the invitation, and this is what I got out of it. He thought he had forever to live. He thought he was only 20 years of age, and surely he could get his life right with God. He could be restored to his dad. He could attend his friend's church. He could do all those things tomorrow. Friends, we are not promised. Tomorrow. Can I implore you? Can I, can I, if it helps, I don't beg people often. But if I could just beg you for a moment. If you're without Christ, would you give your heart to Him today? If you're watching us on television, you're listening live on the Internet, or more importantly to me, if you're here. And you're listening. Because I know you're here. Because I believe the Spirit of God has told me that you're here. And this could be the last chance for you. This could be the very last opportunity that God gives you to be saved. So you need to be saved. You say, well, what do I need to do? Well, oh, friends, you need to believe, and you really need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you can have life in His name. So if this is what I want you to do. Whoever you are, you may be sitting over here. You may be over here. You may be in the middle. Just say, "Okay, God, I'm tired of playing games and jokes. I believe and I'm sorry for my sins. I turn away from my sin and I embrace you, the King. You're my Lord, you're my boss. I'm going to start living for you." That's what you need to do. He said, "I'm not ready. I don't know if I'm ready to do that. You need to get ready." He said, "Well, brother Danny, you're forceful. Yes. I'm pleading with you to give your life to Christ today. This very Moment today. I don't want to go to heaven without you. I want you to be in heaven with Christ and with His church. So give your life to Him today. And let me help you do that. Let me pray with you. Would you pray with me? We'll have our invitation. With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed. Oh, sir. Oh, ma'am. Friend, listen. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Call upon His name. Repent of your sins. And become a new creation in, in the Lord today. You say, I'm ready. Then do it. Now, what we're going to do in a moment, now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to try to intimidate you. What we're going to do is we're going to stand as a church. And Terry and this praise team, they're going to sing. They're going to lead us in a song. And if that is you, and you are the man, you are the woman, you are the student, the boy, the girl that's given your life to Christ, I want you to get up from where you are. Come down this aisle. Take one of these pastors by the hand, and, say, and all you need to say is, "It's me." Pastor was talking about me, and so today I'm giving my I'm giving my life to the Lord today. Would you do it, Father? I pray that the shackles would fall from their eyes, and the barricade that Satan has built around their hearts would be shattered they would believe, they would see that the Lord is good. And Father, I pray that you would increase your kingdom right here, right now. In Jesus' name, I pray and I believe. Amen.